Welcome to the fifth episode of the Cross-Border Interviews Huntington's Awareness Week. I'm Christopher Brown, the host of the show, and today we are sitting down with Carrie Towell. Carrie and I chat about her brother and how, after his diagnosis of Huntington's, she and him grew closer together. Carrie and I also talk about how she was able to cope with her brother's diagnosis. So, please enjoy Cross Border Interviews Huntington's Awareness Week featuring Carrie Towell. Carrie, much appreciate it for sitting down and doing this. Uh, all week this week, uh, you are the fifth of sixth episodes of Huntington's Awareness uh, Week on the show. Um, how has Huntington's affected? Uh, changed your life let's start with that oh that's a bit of a long story um you know i I guess you know it kind of starts back when my brother was diagnosed with huntington's um so so we did not have any idea this ran in our family um this came as a complete surprise to us but uh way back in 2008 after about two years of my brother um experiencing some significant what we thought at the time was mental illness but some significant changes to who he was mentally and physically um including a change to his physical appearance um his his teeth his ability to look you in the eye he uh he often look like he might be drunk or um, um, high on drugs, for example. And uh, there was a period of time where my brother became quite violent, uh, threatened to kill my kids and burn my house down. And we took a, a position that he was dangerous um, after he assaulted my parents. Um, my brother would go in fits of rage and then fits of kindness and it didn't really make a lot of sense but at the same time he was experiencing you know a life-changing event he was going through divorce um you know employment uh while he was employed it was maybe not going so well as a result of um you know some family issues and um the loss of being able to see his daughter not purposely the 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 divorce was going to probably happen anyway and they could have been amicable but his behaviors had become so erratic that actions had to be taken by lots of people um so for two years we tried to get him help we uh we asked uh, for him to be admitted to hospital, but he was over the age of 18. Um, so so uh, you know what that process is like. Um, and he'd go into hospital and, and he'd have periods of complete uh, normalcy, I wanna say that word is, and, and basically chalk it up to stress of, you know, this family situation he was going through. On the outside of us, he just wasn't the same person we knew anymore. Um, he, he changed dramatically. Uh, you know, he'd say things uh, that were so incredibly mean, but he'd also make accusations that just weren't realistic. He, you know, he said I was stealing uh, my parents' money. My, my parents are poor, <laughs> don't have any money. Um, but, uh, you know, they're blue collar workers just doing everything they can to get by. Um, and so there were just some significant changes. After the, the event where he um, threatened our family, we basically said, we can't have you in our life anymore. Um, you're dangerous. And our daughter was just born and our older daughter was uh, 10 years old. And uh, we had to take a position that protected our family. And my husband worked overseas. And the, th- the direct threat was, if you come home one day and you find your house burned and your kids are dead, then you'll know who did it and you deserved it. Oh, wow. So um, 
so in that next two years were very painful. I mean, I was very close to my brother growing up. We had a very normal childhood. We were peas in a pod. You know, we fought. We loved each other. We we did everything the normal brother and sisters did. But he was my biggest defender, as I was his. And we did everything together. Um, and then things changed. Um, and then in April of um, uh, uh, oh, oh, 07, yeah, April of 07, no, April of 08, sorry. So in April of 08, uh, I received a phone call um, and my brother had, by this time my brother had been homeless. Um, he was no longer recognizable, those sorts of things. Um, and I'd seen him from time to time, but I wouldn't have much to do with him other than to help him out here or there. And in this period of time, I'd lent him a significant amount of money as well. So there was those issues. Um, and we received a phone call from the RCMP indicating that my brother had uh, jumped off the Bowdoin overpass. It was minus 20. Um, uh, a person driving by thought he was a bag of garbage. Um, he had uh, garbage bags all around him and he was dressed for the winter. We learned afterwards he was sleeping outside. And they went to kick the bag of garbage off the road, off the highway underneath, and um, his leg fell out. And uh, they obviously called an ambulance and, and emergency services responded and he was taken to Red Deer. Um, this began a very tumultuous time in our life because what a lot of people don't understand, whether it's mental illness or Huntington's, you go through these periods of time where there's a lot of blame, there's a lot of um, internal, you know, what did I do wrong? And, and you know, how, how come, you know, how come he just can't be normal? Why can't he just be right? And and why can't he just get a shit together, frankly? <laughs> and, uh, and, and then at the same time, there's this periods of, and I'll full on admit it, and I admitted to this in the interviews I did at the time, there's this periods of, and I hate to say it, but there's this periods of, you know, why don't you just go? Like, why don't you just do what you got to do and put all of us out of this misery? And if that means taking your own life, I'll, I'll get on. <laughs> like, you, you were ruining the rest of our lives. Um, he was an incredibly dangerous person at the time. And frankly, no one was safe. So, you know, I'd be lying to say if there weren't times when I had hoped that midnight phone call wasn't from him, but it was from emergency services saying, the turmoil's over. And I, I hate to say that, but it's, look, it's reality and I'm not going to lie about it. I don't feel good about it either, but um, one has to put themselves in the shoes you're in at that time. Um, so we did get that call and they wouldn't tell us if he was alive or not. Uh, it was a blizzard. Uh, so my mom and my husband, we grabbed my mom and we drove to Red Deer in the middle of a blizzard, not knowing if we were going to find my brother passed away or what state he would be in. So we arrived at Red Deer Regional and uh, he was alive um, and it turned out he was completely broken from the waist down. Um, and uh, so we got to see him uh, that night, but he was, as you can imagine, in and out of consciousness and those sorts of things. So we were asked to come back the next day. We came back the next day and um, he he was um, who he was everywhere. He, um, he he I love you, mom. I love you, everything. When I walked in the room, pure hatred, absolute hatred. I was the one to blame. Um, his suicide note was very, very clear um, for his hate for me and how I had ruined his life and caused all of 
you know, whatever was wrong with him at this point in time, including the loss of his marriage, the loss of any money, his job, um, any dignity, all of those sorts of things. Um, so obviously I wasn't allowed in there. He, he became very erratic and upset. Um, so my husband and my mom were in there. Um, we couldn't stay long. Um, they couldn't manage his pain because uh, at the time they didn't know it, but the receptors weren't taking the pain medication, but he was completely broken. Like all his bones were fully broken from his hips down. And yet there'd be times where he'd be laughing, like as if he had not a single broken, broken bone in his body. So the next day, uh, there was a fantastic physician at Red Deer who pulled us aside and said, his injuries are not reflective of a jump off a bridge. And they weren't reflective of mental illness either. And we, we started to say, what do you mean? And she said, I think he has a neurological problem. I think this is bigger. Um, she said, he can't lift his head up. He can't look you in the eyes. He can't focus. And we said, yeah, he's had that for a couple of years. I, I said, people often used to say he was drunk. My brother's never had a drink in the whole years that I knew him at 32 years at that point in time. I'd never seen my, my brother even have a sip of beer. Like I never happened. He's never used drugs. He served in the military. He was a correctional officer. He was a stellar employee up until this sort of break with his partner. And, and uh, she said, would you mind if I bring in a neurologist? And of course, at this point, we were like, please help us, like help us figure out what is going on here. They brought in a neurologist within a couple days. He was still in uh, Red Deer. And the neurologist went in there, spent a half an hour with him, if that. He came out and he just looked at us and shook, it, shook his head. He said, I've never seen this before in my life, in all my years of practice. He said, your brother hits nine of the 10 markers for Huntington's disease. Does Huntington's run in your family? We all sat there and said, what is Huntington's? And uh, yeah, and, the, and I remember saying, well, I know what Huntington's is. It's on house, right? 13 had Huntington's, but she was a well-competent doctor, like that they can't be talking about the same thing. And he said, he said, your brother is in um, late stage Huntington's. And, and we were just floored. And we said, what does that mean? And he said, we'll do some genetic testing. He said, but it's not good. I've never seen it this severe at this age. Um, but uh, we'll have to do some genetic testing. Over the period of the next three months, uh, we underwent genetic testing for him. And uh, they said it was going to take six months. Uh, I'm very thankful that uh, they they were very cognizant of his deteriorating situation. Um, and um, they were able to get the testing through. And at three months, he was identified as late stage Huntington's and he was given two years to, and he was 32 years old. Wow. So do you um, usually so, when you get that diagnosis, they give you the number of repeaters that you, uh, the person has. Do you remember the number that your brother had? I don't anymore because at his point, it didn't matter. Um, at his point, he was sort of like this unique um, entity that, that, Dr., that Dr. Heinrichs, who was his doctor, I mean, I have it. I have it in a binder right beside me. I have his whole life in my binder um, that basically was like, I'm sorry. I, I, literally, I can't tell you if, if you could imagine a doctor looking at him, but also looking at my mom and me and saying, 
I, I, he just kept shaking his head. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, that's all he kept saying. And then, you know, come, come see me in my office. <laughs> Um, which, you know, then, then, then it, it really, I don't know that we would have heard it then anyway, because we had spent the next three months to get to the final diagnosis, trying to learn about Huntington's and, and we were like, no, it's impossible. And my dad is, our dad is not our real dad, but he's the only dad we knew. So we didn't know any family history from my mom's first husband. And, um, although he was our dad, he just wasn't. Biologically, he was your dad, but in love, he wasn't your dad. Yeah, I don't even know who he is. Neither of us know who, like, we know who he is name-wise, but nor do we care. Like, I don't mean that to be mean, but yeah. he has no significance in our life. Um, so that headed us down a whole different road. Uh, so when you say, how did my life change? Boy, <laughs> um, That's a loaded you know, question. <laughs> very, because that became, so first of all, it became the day that I forgave everything. And I became my brother's advocate, his financer, his punching bag, uh, because the stage he is at, the way Huntington's works is essentially your your receptors and all of this stuff just don't connect, as you, as you know through your series. And the nerve endings just don't operate, but also Huntington's kills parts of your brain that, that act a certain way. So, so it doesn't allow you to show empathy. It doesn't allow you to, to tell the truth. And it's not that you can't tell the truth. It actually is just that that part of your brain just doesn't exist anymore. Um, it, you're, you're uh, frankly more honest, but in the world that you live in. So it doesn't necessarily, like my brother would say he served in Kazakhstan um, in the military. My brother has never left Alberta. He did serve in the military, um, in the regular forces, but had an honorable discharge early on due to a, an incident. Um, so he, he'd never, he'd never left the country. He didn't want a passport. Wow. Like, so he'd never left the country, but he would tell you he'd seen the war in Kazakhstan, for example. Um, so when this became, uh, you ha you know, now it's just all hands on deck. Um, I remember coming home and saying to my husband, uh, you know, my, my brother's gonna die. I need to take care of my parents. My uh, dad had cancer at the time and uh, was young. And this was my mom's only son. And I remember coming home to my husband and saying, I get this isn't your burden. So if this is too much for you, cause it's gonna cost me to get him into long-term care, like this is gonna be a financial hardship. Um, you know, I'm, I get it. If we'll just go our separate ways and we don't have to get in fights and I get it. And of course, my husband wasn't that guy. <laughs> Good. Like, what are you talking about? Are you are, what, are you as crazy as he is, Carrie? <laughs> and I was like, you know, here's your out. And of course, he didn't take it. And in 2008, my my brother became my my um, primary focus. Uh, I worked full time. I was I owned a uh, real estate um, a company and all of that. Um, and he just. It, yeah, it just became everything I was um, advocating for him because, as you can imagine, there's not very many places who want a 32-year-old young guy in their long-term care facility with severe Huntington's, which most facilities just were not equipped to take on. Now, uh, 
when you're doing research and you're edu- educating yourself about the symptoms, um, is there any moment in that time when you're going, I should potentially get tested? I might have this. It might not show up because we know that Huntington's affects everyone differently and the symptoms might not show up at the exact same time for the, every single person. So was there any point in your when this was going on saying I could potentially have this because my my blood brother has it. So I might have it. Of course. But I know me. I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, And um, (laughs) I decided early on that uh, as we did our research and found out there's really no treatment and no cure. um, I decided early on that I I would not get tested um, because, A, there was nothing I could do about it. um, But, B, knowing who I am as a person, I would find a way against my children's wishes to test them and that isn't my right so if 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 i my, my children all know about it so they can choose to do whatever they choose to do but it wasn't my my right to do that but i knew if i was tested and i tested positive i would not not test them okay okay i see where you're going where you're coming from now um your brother when when you started to look after him did you have guilt about how you treated him when he was going through this? Because that's the biggest thing that some uh, siblings and parents might look at is when you didn't know the diagnosis, you're looking at this. You're looking back after you get that diagnosis and say, how did I not help more? Did you have that? Uh, of course. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anybody on earth who doesn't go through this. Um, you, you, you go you, sure so you go through that but I you know I was a single mom at 18 my dad got cancer when my daughter was born or didn't get cancer but he was diagnosed on the day my daughter was born you know our family's been through some hardships my my mom's had cancer before and uh, you just learn quickly that you know whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger and and, and I was taught by both of my parents at a very young age that you can only control what you can control and you can you can whine about everything that happened yesterday I suppose or you can do what is expected today and go above and beyond so the minute that happened like I said I mean I, I ended up paying a hundred thousand dollars for my brother's care I wrote 420 letters to the provincial government at the time um, to get him into care I advocated him every for him every step of the way and at the end of the day, when my brother passed in 2010, um, I felt completely at peace, and he did too, that he was so well taken care of and loved, and I'd rebuilt, sorry, he had rebuilt his life with my help because we were able to show people that who they thought he was, he wasn't. This is a result of an illness, a disease, a, a death disease, frankly, that he had no control over. So we were able to bring back his his peer group. We were able to bring back family that had alienated him. And so today I, I have complete peace and, and no regrets about um, that period of time. I only know what I know in the day. And, and ultimately I was protecting my family. And at the end of the day, I protected Ron. Um, 
once your brother did pass, did you give back to the community that helped you? Because there are resources out there for families who are going through what you went through, not exactly how you went through it, but uh, there are resources like the Huntington Society of Canada. There's chapters across Alberta. There's the Northern One Camrose in the Southern Alberta. So how have you given back to the community that helped you? So I think there's, you know, giving back is different for everybody, right? So obviously, um, charitable donations is a piece of it. Um, we changed how we donated and we structured our donations strictly to Huntington. So at Christmas time and those kinds of things, rather than exchanging gifts, we have always made um, a contribution on behalf of our whole family. Um for us, because we're in a rural community, the chapters weren't as available as 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 you might want. But that's not their fault. It also is is that we we just took it on. Like I, that's just kind of who I am. And and you know, I would I, I used to talk to the Calgary chapter, and he'd say, "Well, we can come to Innisfil, like to to help you with Ron." I'm like, "No, no, no. I just need to know if I'm on the right path. Thank you very much." <laughs> you know. Um, I think probably more of my giving back was when I ran for office. I mean, I think anybody who knows me from my period of time when I was elected, um, there wasn't a speech. If you were talking about the budget, I was talking about my brother. If you were talking about pumpkins, I was talking about my brother. There wasn't a day in the legislature. There wasn't a reference to Huntington's. So I spent my time elected champion being a champions who are in care and for educating people on what Huntington's is. I use social media, I still do to this day, to make sure that when people see someone down walking down the street, to let's not blindly assume that they're X, Y, and Z or discard them, that that, that could be that very person who doesn't know their diagnosis yet. That could be that very person who 10 years from now could have Huntington's and, and have no treatment, no cure. And, and it wouldn't have mattered what, what mental health supports you would have got them because that wasn't what they needed. They, they didn't know. I've spent a lifetime, it seems now, educating um, family on Huntington's. And, and, and sadly, my, my, my brother's uh, daughter, who is 23 now, uh, uh, has Huntington's and is uh, very severely progressed. Um, you know, it's not mine to tell her story. I, I did share with it a little bit in the legislature with her permission. But, um, you know, I just think it's my duty to, to make sure that we, we're not ignorant about what Huntington's is, but also just, if there's one thing I learned through the whole process, you know, I, I worked in long-term care at the time for Alberta Health Services. And I used to kind of think, what do you mean you don't have money for care? Like, like Alberta's booming. You know, if you don't, then you probably didn't take care of yourself enough. You know what I mean? Like I was pretty, I was kind and compassionate, but I was also pretty judgmental and pretty, you know, I was 26, right? Yeah. <laughs> 26 to 32, you know what we're like. Yeah. Um, you know, although I was, I was taking care of my parents, my dad and stuff, I, I still just sort of looked at the community of, you know, if you took care of your health and if you, we have a great healthcare system just to access it. Um, what I learned through this whole process was we all have a, a job to do to not, to take everyone at face value, you know, is don't judge anybody because you just don't know. 
you know, I'm not strong because I'm strong. <laughs> I'm strong because my brother made me strong. If you, when you have to, you know, I mean, there's certain straits of strong people, but I never thought I'd go into politics. I never thought I'd have to write letters to a government. I never thought I'd go on radio on a regular basis. Um, and then it became my, yeah, my job. <laughs> um, you have literally answered every single one of my questions so far, and I haven't even asked that many questions. So thank you. Um, for the families who are just getting that diagnosis today, for the family in rural Alberta, rural Saskatchewan, rural Canada, across the world who are listening to this, who are getting that diagnosis, what advice would you give them to make it easier for them to potentially cope with what they're going to be going through? So I think the first one, breathe. It is so overwhelming. There is um. There is nothing like being told that your loved one is going to die this horrific death, that his organs are going to shut down, that his body's going to run a triathlon every 30 minutes, that he's going to need 11,000 calories a day just to breathe, that he's going to be bedridden, that he's going to have to have 24-hour nursing care, that his death is going to be incredibly awful and painful. And there's nothing you can do to help them. That they're going to forget who you are. They're going to go through periods of rage and hate. And they're going to blame you for everything. They're going to be violent, aggressive. And they might even commit suicide. Just take a moment and breathe. Because the next years are the only years. And that day is the best day you have with them. Because every the next day is the next day closer to the day they die. Tuntington's doesn't get any better. It just gets worse. But you can take so much joy. I remember when about three months after when my brother moved past. It's funny because... You know, we, we finally got a book on Huntington's and what we started to realize is I started reading and putting Ron in these sections of Huntington's and I would flip the page and I'd be like, OK, you know, um, I think think this is where he's at. And then he would do something completely different in the hospital. And I'd go home and be like, oh, my gosh, like, like, where did that come from? And it, it was comments that were whoo, inappropriate, I'm telling you, inappropriate. And uh, I'd flip the page and there it would be in the Huntington's book. This part of your brain is effective. This is X stage or, or um, succession in X stage. And um, so this is the day that you'll experiencing this. When we got through that stage of just absolute rage and hate and all of confusion and all of that, it was amazing how loving my brother became. I'd see him and I'd, I'd go and I'd see him. And he was still in Red Deer at the time. It was about three months later. And his bones broken like he was wheelchair bound. And he'd scream in pain. And the next minute he'd be... Carrie, I love you and wanting to hug me and, and kiss me on the cheek and say how much he loved me. And then a few minutes later, he'd be like, you remember when I hated you? And I'd be like, yeah, I remember it's tough times. I know, but I love you now. Then we got through that stage. 
And so then eventually- sorry to interrupt. So he would actually remember the swings he would have with like hating you and loving you, and he would be able to recall that at a moment's notice, but not maybe in the future, but during that moment. Yeah. Wow. Um, and and it wouldn't be remember as in he'd remember the day or the time or the exact context, but he he'd remember and he'd be like, boy, I really, you know, do you remember when I hated you so much? Okay. You know, but if you asked him, well, did you go to Kazakhstan? He, he'd stare at you and go, what are you talking about? You know? Um, but also there were times in that same period of time, like I would be sitting with him and he used to love Pepsi. Like he would drink liters and liters of Pepsi in a day uh, and and donuts. So, as you know, if you didn't come with a Pepsi and a donut, like you'd spend 20 minutes talking about how you didn't bring him a Pepsi and a donut. Um, so I remember coming and sitting with him and saying, I brought you a Pepsi and a donut. And we were having this great conversation and then a break. And when I say break, it was just sort of like something switches, right? He jerks a little bit and then something switches. And then what happens is that, um, he'll, he'll say, Oh, Oh, you know, um, you know, it's so nice to see you. Um, you look exactly like my sister. Oh, wow. And I'd say, I'd say, oh, um, and and he'd say, yeah, she brings me Pepsi and a donut. And then he'd look at the Pepsi and donut I just brought him. He'd be like, oh, thank you for bringing me a Pepsi and a, and he used to like the Long Johns. And a Long John, um, if you see my sister, can you tell her she doesn't need to bring my bring me a Pepsi? And I'd say, sure. So I think the second piece of advice I'd give to anyone who's going through this is roll with it. Look, you're not going to change what they remember. So live in their world. I lived my when my my brother believed that he believed all the time that uh, that, that that he was going to die. So he knew he was going to die, but he also thought he had Tourette's. So so on on one hand, he'd go through these moments of real sadness that he's going to die and then start laughing and say, I'm going to tell everybody I have Tourette's and then would start in a massive swearing spree of the F word. So when people walked by and he would be embarrassing, I would say he has Tourette's. I wouldn't say he has Huntington's. And my brother would be like, yeah, I have Tourette's. (laughs) That was his world. There's no sense getting in a fight with him because in his world and in his brain, that's the way it is. So rather than trying to argue with him about it, and in this period of time, he wanted um, he wanted to write a book, and he thought CBC should do a series on him, and um, he and and he wanted the premier at the time uh, to come to his funeral. Like he actually thought the premier would attend his funeral, and uh, because that's how important he believed he was. And not important as in stature, but just I have Huntington's. This is a rare disease. Like they they should want to come see me and this is what I want. And if you told them it couldn't happen, it would anger him and it would ruin his day. And then he'd just leave. Like he'd roll himself away and get mad at you. And I'd end up leaving crying. And two minutes later, he was just fine. Whereas when I started to realize, be like, absolutely, let's write a letter to the premier. We'd never sent a letter to the premier. Sure, let's call the CBC. Funny enough, um, we ended up being on CBC and we did end up having a documentary on me and my brother while he was still alive called Twice Lost. And um, 
and it was about a, it started with the struggle of him getting into long-term care, but it ended up with having a brother, not having a brother during this tumultuous time where he was ill and we couldn't see each other because he was dangerous to finally getting my brother back only to lose him again in death. And I'm so thankful now because I can go back to twice lost and I also have 42 hours of tape of just my brother. Wow. So in the end, my brother, I remember him saying, see, Carrie, I told you I'd get on CBC. I told you they wanted to tell him my story. And I remember when he, as he got closer, he never, we never knew when he was going to die. But as time went on, he'd be like, I'm getting closer because it's, it's a year and eight months. Right. And I'd be like, yeah, no, I know. He's like, I haven't heard from the premier. Um, and, and obviously then he, he died not in the normal fashion, but then I went on into politics. So in this weird way, you know, playing with it, it was like, you know, maybe the premier should hear my brother's story, you know, and they did. They did in the legislature, whether they wanted to or not, <laughs> and regularly. <laughs> um, you might not be able to answer this question, but if you can't, don't worry. Um, how did your mother handle this period of time? Mm-hmm. Terrible. And I don't mean terrible as in um, she couldn't handle it. I mean, there's nothing like being a parent and watching your son or your child die right in front of you. You have to remember, at this point in time, my dad had had cancer. He could no longer work, hadn't worked since he was 52. Um, And um, uh, he was home, like he didn't have a driver's license and all this. So my mom had been a caregiver for a long time to my dad, and they were not well off. My mom worked for Alberta Health Services. She still does to this day. Um, And my mom is a nurturer. My mom is the kindest person and most giving person I've ever met in my whole life. And I know there's lots of giving people out there. Don't get me wrong. My mom has been poor most of her life and has, has struggled and worked her, you know, what's off (laughs) for her whole life. She's never got a break and she's battled uh, cancer. Uh, she's she's taking care of my dad while he battled cancer. She lost my dad two years ago, but she is just the kindest, warmest person I've ever known. And she she looked at it um, as her fault, right? She picked her partner. She gave birth. This was her fault. If if I hadn't married that person, if I hadn't been with that person, then he wouldn't have it. I killed my son. And then the guilt over the two years where she had little to no contact with Ron and all the I should have known, I should have known, I should have forced this and that. In reality, look, we live in a small rural town. Even in the city, nobody would have picked up Huntington's. It's rare. I'm sure you know from your other parts of your series that, you know, the average person doesn't, it's more common now, but we're talking um, 2008, 2006. Uh, The doctors we had around here, actually, uh, Dr. Davies, who was Ron's doctor, who was fantastic, actually went to the States and spent a month learning about Huntington's. So that way he could help your brother? And he did. And he did. He uh, he was so uh, fantastic with my brother. He actually got it. He got us. Um, and, and that's comforting at a time when maybe the system wasn't so helpful. Um, but my mom, I don't know that my mom's ever recovered from losing her son. 
she she's never been the same. I don't think anyone would because you, you when you all I, I've heard this numerous times from stories I've heard for, about Huntington's. It's you never want to pre uh, pre uh, seed your son. They should be burying you. You should not be burying them. And uh, one of the things that I, I've I, I I see and it, it's different for everyone. I know this. this. These are the stories that are always told though is you can't watch your loved one go through that right it's hard to watch your loved one go through that and you're telling stories how sometimes you just have to roll with it and that's great but other family members might not be able to do that right because they don't want to see the person that they raise the person that they love go through that process so it probably was challenging for your mom and yourself as well I think, you know, so my mom, my brother became all encompassing to the point of the detriment of her health. Like we actually physically and mentally worried about my mom's health, whether she would actually make it through this. Um, And when my brother passed, um, I honestly didn't, I honestly thought she'd just wake up the next morning and just not make it. And for the months afterwards, just not make it. My mom became my brother's whole world. Uh, she Before work, she was at the hospital. She was feeding him, clothing him, washing him. As soon as she came home from work, uh, she would quickly go home and change uh, and then go back to the hospital. She'd spend all the hours right until the last hour she could spend with him. And that was a lot of work. Like my brother was exhausting. Um, you know, I became my brother's caregiver, but not the nurturer. I can't, became his caregiver as in I was the financial person. So I could leave the hospital. I wouldn't, I didn't feed my brother. I, I'm not good at that. There are certain skill sets that, that you shouldn't do if you're not good at. And <laughs> um, whereas my mom didn't care. My mom would, if my brother had an accident, she would clean him. Uh-huh. Um, if, if my brother threw up all over himself or spilled food all over his face or, or threw, threw something at her, she would clean it up. If my brother fell out of bed, my mom's 90 pounds max. She'd try and lift him and put him into bed. She devoted her whole two years to the point where we thought it was going to kill her. In the end, it didn't. But she she lost her spark. She lost her her will, her fight. Um, and she's just not the same. Don't get me wrong. I love my mom, and she's she's still kind and nurturing. But the spark is gone. Um. If you don't mind, if we we can talk about that day, that day that he finally passed, um, you you hear stories of there's there's a two sided sword to it. You you grieve for the loss of the, your loved one, but at the same time, there's a part of you, and the, and this is the stories that I've heard. And please correct me if it's if I'm out to left field on this one. There's a part of you saying. It's over. He's not struggling anymore. I, 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 I'm at peace that he is now no longer feeling the pain of Huntington's. Did you have that? Yep. Yes. I, I, I think there are different levels of that within our family. Um, I probably had it more than most because I was probably the most prepared. Um, I knew right at the onset that this day was coming, but I also knew at the onset that every day was worse. So I I think that for my world and also just with who I am, um, I looked at things a lot differently than other members of our family. Um, 
that day that it happened, we received the call from by now, uh, two months before my brother passed, he was um, moved to the Care West facility in Calgary at the Fanning Center. And he loved it. And they loved him. The nurses loved him. The doctors loved him. It was finally home. And uh, we were thrilled to have him there because we just knew they they knew all about Huntington's they knew all about head injuries it was just the right place for him um we got the call on uh uh uh, Thanksgiving Monday uh and um they said he had the flu um and this is where I think it gets a little more difficult because when you're the decision maker like the one thing I I would say to people is you need to make, unfortunate, and I tend to be a very um, step-by-step person, and some people may see it as uncaring. It's just who I am. But the minute my brother was diagnosed, I knew some things had to happen. First of all, I needed, my brother didn't have any assets, so I wasn't worried about a will or anything. But I knew I needed a personal directive, and I knew I needed a power of attorney because decisions had to be made. But I also knew I needed to do it when he was competent. Yeah. So people were looking at me going, you're uncaring. Like, like you can deal with that later. And I was looking at very functionally saying, no, actually I can't. Cause once he's not competent, he's not competent. Like there's decisions that have to be made. And in the end, I was very um, glad that I had made these decisions and took all of that stress away from my mom. And my brother asked for me to be that person. And at one point in time, my brother asked for me to be the person because he said, you're the only one who will make the decision. Everybody else is gonna be stuck in the, well, I don't wanna hurt him, and, but he, I, I'm probably a little bit more colder. Uh, some people would say colder hearted, but it's not, it's dysfunctional. And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% to your wishes. So you're the person, these are your wishes, and I will abide by them 100% to the detriment of all other things. Um, and so that day came, they said my brother had the flu and they wanted to transfer him. And I said, I said, no, I don't think you're going to do that. And they said, it's pretty serious. Like he may not make it through. And I said, we have a personal directive in place. Uh, we have steps that you're not supposed to do that. And the nurse on the other end of the phone was crying and she was saying, are you sure we can, we, we can keep him with us longer? And I was saying, no. So you can imagine what this is like at home. I was driving at the time and I was saying, no, no, you, you can't do that. So I'm having to take the position of saying, no, you have to let him go. But my heart is saying, don't let him go. And certainly don't let him go before I can get there. Yeah. And I was saying to her, is this like, do you think he's, is this the day? And she, so she had the doctor call me back and the doctor was trembling. And he was saying, we can send him to the foothills, Carrie. We can put him on oxygen. We can do it. And I said, is that going to prevent or is it just buying him time? And they said, buying him time. And I said, I said, no. I said, that is not his wishes. And my brother was clear when he was cognizant, he was clear in his wishes. Very, very clear. And he'd been clear in his wishes pre-Huntington's. He had served in the army. He was clear in his wishes then. Yep. He was clear in his wishes in the event of a car accident. He was clear then. So this was not anything new. So I picked up my mom and we started and and I phoned my husband and said, I need you to gather my dad and our kids. Uh, And we needed to go to Calgary. But I said, I need to take my mom there right now. We may not have time. And we got there. And as soon as we walked in, the nurses were crying. They started gathering around us and they took me and my mom to my brother. And it was clear. 
something had shifted in the night. He had looked like he'd had a stroke or something like that. What we didn't know was time. How much time, right? Um, and he certainly had a temperature and he had some symptoms and that sort of stuff. And they were still offering me. And in front of my mom, I was having to say, no, if today's the day, then we'll stay. So I told my husband, I said, can you bring us a bag? Probably need one for 10 days. Because what they tell you is you essentially have to wait for their organs to shut down or, or something to break. Right. And that can be hours, days, you know, could be a week. Weeks. Exactly. Right. Uh and so this could be a very, and we we had read and heard that this could be a very, an extremely painful process. Um, it was not an easy process. So um, we were prepared for that. Um, I knew right away, I had been a palliative care counselor, I had some palliative care training, uh, nothing extensive, but I knew right away that it wasn't weeks. I could tell by how the, the staff was reacting, but I could also tell that they were having to, um, put water in his mouth they were having to swab regularly and then he had lost control of certain functions um and that was the switch so we phoned his daughter and and his his um, ex-wife who we everybody was in great relationships like this was not a situation where nobody got along everybody was fully integrated um they knew he was in hospital all that stuff they visited him regularly his daughter was a huge part of his life his pride and joy um all of that and my so my husband my dad my mom all of us were there and my mom stepped out of the room to go to the bathroom and um my my brother uh, was not an easy passing, but uh, she didn't have to see it. So I was with him, and uh, yeah, it's a very hard hard position to be in. Looking back on the journey that you and your brother and your family took through that Huntington's, um, it sounds emotional, raw. You 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 are an. Uh, stronger person probably today and I think anyone who goes through this is a stronger person today who have gone through what you've gone through so I I, I, I have not I, I do have family members who have Huntington's but I've not been as affected as you have because it is a, so close of a loved one um, looking at your brother today remembering those good times does that give you solace? Oh, yeah. You know, we were just talking about this, like this October, it will be 10 years. And I feel like it was yesterday. I feel his hugs around me. I am just thankful that we got a diagnosis, that we had two years of love. Um, Because I think if my brother had passed that day in 2008, the relationship was done. And, and my memory of him would be so different. Regardless of our childhood, it just was so tainted and, and terrible. Now I look back and, and, and the person who died in the end was the brother I knew, the brother who loved people. He loved his time serving in the military. He, he loved his time serving as a correctional officer. Um, I, I don't know anyone who, who didn't love his daughter more and, and was so affectionate to his daughter um, and, and just truly, truly adored her. Uh, he, 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 my mom, um, it, it just, yeah, I, I, when I think of my brother now, it brings a smile to my face and all of that hardship for those two years, I think of who I am today and who our family is because my daughter was six when my brother was diagnosed. That was the first day my six year old met my brother. 
she didn't even know I had a brother. We had to not only explain to her we're going to the hospital, but we had to explain to her that the person she was meeting in the hospital uh, was my brother. So she didn't even know he existed. Today she's 18 and her memories of my brother are fantastic. Um, I am not who I am today without my brother. He He's constantly in my head. I would not have the strength. I would not have the empathy, the compassion. Uh, I would not have the fight. Um, but I also wouldn't have the appreciation of, you know, what we're given and, and what we have and these moments in time. You know, I don't, I don't look at any day as a wasted day. I look at a day as a day longer than my brother got. And I'm thankful to him for teaching me more about who I needed to be as a person and what I could do. Cause I was a secretary for Alberta health service and I actually thought it was a, and it is a darn good job. And that was about the max. That was my maximum capacity. And clearly that wasn't it. We go on to do bigger and better things as most of these life events do for most people. It's shocking what your brain and your body can with, can, can, can take on and push you forward. The other way is equal, not all of my family, including our two kids, um, you know, were able to move with strength. Some of them suffered from severe depression, um, you know, and handled it differently, but they are stronger, but they're not, they, they don't see it as a pause as positive as I do. Um, Carrie, I want to thank you very much for doing this. Um, your story will hopefully help people who are going through this and, uh, just taking this time and talking about your brother. I very much appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I appreciate the opportunity to share our story. And, you know, I'm just huge hugs to everybody who's going through this. It's not easy, but you're not alone. And once again, I want to thank our guests for coming in, sitting down and telling their story. Please visit HuntingtonSociety.ca. While there, please feel free to reach out to your local chapter, get involved. But if you can, please donate. Your donation can help families across Canada. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. And once again, I'm your host, Christopher Brown. We will be back tomorrow with another great episode of the Cross Border Interviews Hunting. Awareness Week.